Hi everyone, thanks for joining us today for the 2 Degree C Climate Chat. Joining me today again, Dr. Carsten Schein, and our guest today, Dr. Jennifer Jackson of the Hakai Institute in Canada, here to discuss her work as a physical oceanographer in British Columbia. Her work focuses on how the ocean is changing and at the ripple effects that are manifesting throughout the ocean realm. So join us as we explore in the 2 Degree C Climate Chat. Okay, guys, joining us today again, uh, like I said, Dr. Carson Shine and Dr. Jennifer Jackson from the Hakai Institute in uh, British Columbia, Canada. Welcome to both of you. Thank you for having me. Thanks. So, Carson, um, I wanted to frame this discussion a little bit. Um, you know, there's quite a lot in the news uh, cycle about um, the Arctic and uh, warming that's occurring in the Arctic. Maybe you can uh, help the listeners understand a little bit about why this particular discussion is important. Certainly. Um, you know, there are a few places really where the effects of climate change have been as acutely felt as in the high latitudes. Um, historically, climate observations across the Arctic have shown warming that's much greater than we've seen anywhere else. Um, nearly all the climate models out there are in agreement that the region will continue to warm much faster and to a greater degree than lower latitudes. Um, this is really bad news for both Arctic wildlife and Arctic communities. Um, things like changing ocean chemistry and temperatures are um, changing fisheries production, decreasing it. Um, longer periods of open water are accelerating shoreline erosions, threatening uh, a lot of the native uh, coastal communities. Um, permafrost throughout the region is uh, thawing more deeply, um, causing roads and buildings to destabilize. In fact, just last summer, uh, thawed permafrost uh, caused the collapse of a large fuel tank in Siberia that dumped over about 20,000 liters of diesel fuel into a nearby river. Um, you know, and this is really what makes the work of uh, those such as uh, uh, Dr. Jackson uh, so critical. Good. Thank you. So, um, Jennifer, the... Um... Welcome to the Two Degree C Climate Chat podcast. Uh, I know uh, we've had, had the discussion to bring you in a couple of times, so we're happy to have you. Um, I wanted to get um, you to perhaps introduce yourself to the listeners and, and so that they can understand uh, who you are and what you're doing up in Canada. Sure. Yeah. So I am a coastal physical oceanographer um, and a physical oceanographer basically means I study the physics of the ocean. And my main focus has been ocean climates, um, largely changes in temperature, but also changes in oxygen as well. Um, and at the Hakai Institute, we study the coastal margin of British Columbia, which we sort of define as everything between, well, the glaciers actually right to sort of the um, edge of the continental shelf. Um, and so some of the main foci there have been looking at long term time series in some of the different inlets and fjords in British Columbia. Awesome. So, and you know, the, the Hakai Institute, like you say, um, it, it's specifically coastal work on, in British Columbia. So what kind of climactic changes are you seeing? And, you know, what warning signs can we expect that are, are, are being shown there? Yeah. So, I mean, I like to think of the major climate changers in the ocean. There's three big ones. Um, the first is temperature. So the warming of the ocean. The second is deoxygenation or the loss of oxygen in the ocean. 
and the third is ocean acidification. Um, and all three of those are so- somehow sort of interconnected, but also together they change the physical environment of the ocean, and that has profound impacts on the ecosystem as well. Um, I'd like to also say sort of the big four that I like to think about is also the increase of plastics in the ocean as well. It's not necessarily a climate change indicator, but it's, you know, the fourth large, um, you know, change that we're seeing in the ocean. Right. And yeah. And being an oceanographer, you, you, you're watching some of that, um, you know, in, in the sampling that you're doing. But, you know, as, as far as I understand, your main study is related to ocean heat. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And so um, for British Columbia in particular, we've got, um, we've amalgamated about a 70 year long time series, which is quite amazing um, for some coastal waters. There's not a lot of time series that are that long. Um, they started in 1951 with a professor named George Picard, who was at the University of British Columbia. And he did these inlets cruises into the different fjords or inlets around Vancouver Island and British Columbia. There's about 85 different inlets. Um, across British Columbia. And so he amalgamated over his 30-year career this amazing time series that more or less ended in the 1980s. Um, There were a few different um, sampling um, events after that, but there were large data gaps between about the 1980s and the early 2000s. And then the Hakai Institute, um, which is um, funded by the Tula Foundation, started sampling in the region in around 2008. Um, and we, we had the ability, because of where our field stations are, to collect year-round high-resolution data um, and from which we could resolve the seasonal cycle, which is really important when you're thinking about long time series is you have to be able to look at the trend over decades instead of just the trend over a seasonal cycle. So you have to know what the seasonal cycle looks like. Um, and because we've been able to have um, time series over the last 10 to 15 years, we can really sort of fill in what's been happening since the 1950s. And what we're seeing, and, and I've been really focusing on inlets, um, in particular four different inlets, uh, Rivers Inlet, um, Night Inlet, Butte Inlet, and Douglas Channel, which is farther north, and that's in collaboration with Fisheries and Oceans Canada. Um, and what we're seeing is it's actually deep water that's changing the most. And deep water is everything that we define as below the sill of these inlets. So these inlets were essentially carved out by glaciers um, as glaciers have, have um, or during the last glacial maximum. And then as the glaciers retreated, um, they left an ocean behind. And at the, the head of the glacier, so where the glacier ended, they left a sill behind. And so Sometimes the sills are only tens of meters deep, sometimes they're hundreds of meters deep, um, but they almost act as a, a barrier between the rest of the inlet, which can often be up to seven or 800 meters deep. And so what we've found is that um, the water that is deeper than the sill depth in these inlets is actually changing, and it's changing about twice as fast, it's warming about twice as fast as waters of similar depth in the open ocean. Uh, so it's stark changes, and it's changes that are almost similar to the type of changes that we're seeing in the Arctic, and it's making us think that these inlets are really a hot spot for climate change. That is interesting. And it, um, just sticking with that thought for a second, you know, um, are you n- noticing specific changes that are occurring in migration of species and things like that? 
Yeah, so a lot of the work that we do, we work very closely with the with the coastal First Nations in the area, um, particularly the Heltzik and the Wikinuv and the Homalco First Nations. Um, and they're really um, interested and alarmed by the disappearance of salmon. Um, we've had, a, you know, most salmon along the coast have really crashed in the last decade or so. Um, and what we think, one of the reasons we think the salmon are, are crashing is that where British Columbia lies, it's a junction between sort of colder, uh, more subarctic waters and warmer, more subtropical, subtropical waters. And depending on how the winds and the climate shifts, you can get either more southerly um, warm waters into British Columbia or more northerly cold waters into British Columbia. And when you bring the southerly warm waters in, you also bring the zooplankton. And the southerly zooplankton are a lot less nutritious than the normal, northerly zooplankton. The northern, northerly species, they have lots of fat, lots of lipid. And so when a juvenile salmon comes out of a stream and eats one of those zooplankton, um, it's really, it's good for the salmon. Um, it gets lots of fat, it grows quickly. And so as it continues out into the open ocean, it's, you know, it's in quite good shape to survive the years until it has to return to spawn. But when a juvenile salmon comes out of the stream and it has one of these sort of less nutritious, almost junk food like southern cop uh, copepod species, um, it needs to eat a lot more of them in order to grow and to build the fat stores that it needs. So that's one of the reasons we're thinking that the salmon just aren't doing that well is because these warm waters have sort of shifted in, brought with them these um, southerly species. And uh, so just the marine ecosystem is not as conducive to salmon growth as it would be otherwise. And of course, that has a trickle-on effect throughout the food web because uh, salmon obviously not just uh, ecolog ecologically important or economically important for humans, but they're ecolo ecologically important for uh, other species. Okay. So, and Carson, uh, I mean, we're seeing quite a lot of that right now, just sticking with salmon for a second uh, in the U.S. That's made quite, quite a bit of, uh, of recent history uh, in the news. Um, and that surely is related to the climatic conditions that are occurring in, um, on the western half of the United States. Oh, that's ab absolutely right. Uh, in you know, down in uh, California, I believe they're they're trucking. They're literally trucking something like 17 million salmon uh, to the ocean uh, because there's not enough flow in the rivers right now because of the, the ongoing drought out there. And up in Oregon, uh, there there are talks about uh, diverting irrigation water. Uh, away from farms uh, to ensure there's enough flow uh, for salmon to make it to the to the ocean, and that's got a lot of the a lot of the farmers uh, uh, very anxious about about what may happen there. And that relates back to the change in precipitation. I'm, uh, I'm assuming. Yeah, the the, the ongoing uh, mega drought that's that's going on right now in the in the western United States, uh, especially in in the California region, Oregon region where they have not had uh, normal precipitation in uh, quite some time. And um, again, that relates back to snowfall as well, correct? Correct. Uh, a large a large amount of the of the drought depends on, or ameliorating the drought would depend on uh, having a decent uh, snowpack in the winter for it to uh, melt off gradually during the spring and supply a lot of those streams uh, with the water they need and the groundwater recharge that uh, farmers might need. Uh, to uh, plant the crops and, and defer irrigation until later on in the summer. 
Described barefoot luxury, the casually sophisticated Southern Cross Club is Little Cayman's original resort. This hidden gem is as unique and vibrant as the island it inhabits. A true island treasure, it is the perfect place to dive, fish and relax. Its 14 beachfront bungalows are situated on 900 feet of white sand, only minutes from the world-class diving found only in Little Cayman. Visit www.southerncrossclub.com to book your escape to tranquility. Hi, I'm Adrian with Quest Dive Adventures, and you're listening to the Two Degrees C Climate Chat Podcast. So, um, Jennifer, you've spent a lot of time up in the Arctic Circle. Um, yeah. I, I mean, you, you live fairly close to it, but you're not quite there. But you have spent quite a bit of time up there, uh, mostly on ships, I'm assuming? Yeah, that's right. So during my PhD, I, um, I had two cruises in the Canada Basin of the Arctic Ocean, which is the water that's directly north of sort of Alaska and Yukon. Um, and we went as far north as 80 degrees on those wow. trips. Yeah. And uh, yeah, and each trip was about five to six weeks long. Uh, I found out I was pregnant with my son on the second oh, wow. trip. That was a big surprise. <laughs> so I haven't been back since. <laughs> that was an interesting cruise. But uh, yeah, um, it's yeah not necessarily conducive to uh, to having you know being a woman with a young family or these Arctic trips. So unfortunately, I haven't been back since two thousand and seven. But I spent about a decade studying Arctic Ocean conditions. So looking at your studies there, um, you know, based on the knowledge you learned then and looking at the conditions now, what, what can you see is changing based on, on your experience? Yeah, I mean, the Arctic is so interesting and it's so complicated. And part of the reason it's so complicated is that it's influenced by all the other oceans in a, in a way that most other water bodies aren't. So if we consider the Arctic um, almost as different layers, um, the deepest is, you know, is water that sits there for thousands of years and it just, it's Arctic deep water, we call it. Above that is a layer that's about a thousand meters thick that's largely composed of Atlantic water flowing in um, and it flows in through the Barents Sea and Fram Strait. Um, above that is a layer of water that's about 150 meters thick and it's water that flows in from the Pacific Ocean um, through Bering, the Bering Strait. Um, and then above that, you have water that's sort of seasonally influenced by Arctic processes. So it's the true Arctic surface water. Um, and that layer in itself is really complicated because it's influenced by both sea ice formation and sea ice melts. Um, there's large rivers that flow into the Arctic, and those also contribute to what we see in the surface waters. Um, and, and all of these different layers are changing. You know, for example, the, the Pacific waters are warming. There was a big influence of the marine heat wave. So the water that's been flowing in through Bering, the Bering Strait and the Bering Sea, um, that's been really warm. And, and it's been warm enough that it's melting sea ice along its path, which it never used to do. The water that's been moving in from the Atlantic has also been changing. And you can see huge amounts of seasonality and different decadal and interdecadal oscillations even within the Atlantic water. Um, and then the deep water, it's quite stagnant. So it just sort of sits there and it doesn't change very much yet, though I imagine it, the change is yet to come. Um, and so 
the Arctic is interesting in that sense is that it's not just processes that happen within the Arctic that cause that body of water to change, but it's processes that happen sometimes, you know, thousands or even ten tens of thousands of kilometers away that really influence what's happening in the Arctic. Um, so it's largely been changes, again, to heat. It's been warming rapidly. Um, the sea ice has been melting rapidly. Um, when the sea ice melts, it leaves this really fresh or buoyant layer on top of the ocean that then influences how the ocean interacts with the atmosphere and how sea ice is formed. Um, yeah, so it's, it's really complicated, um, but big changes that we're seeing there. And, you know, if we relate this back to um, our primary concern in this, you know, right now, it's certainly climate change and the, the amount of carbon dioxide that is being um, absorbed by the oceans. And Carson has has told us quite a few times on the show about, you know, the, how the the role of the the, the oceans in, you know, or the importance of the, the ocean in the uptake uh, and sequestration of carbon. But if you look as an oceanographer, if you look at those layers of water, um, are they affected much by the heat, by the um, the amount of carbon dioxide that they're able to sequester? Yeah, and certainly, again, they each have their own signature. And like the Pacific water, for example, is quite acidic um, and, and much more acidic than other bodies of water that you see in the Arctic. So where the Pacific layer sort of ends up depends on its density as it flows in. So if it's warmer, it's going to be lighter, and that means it's going to sit closer to the surface where, you know, a lot of the animals that we care about are going to be influenced um, by that more acidic water. Um, and of course, the Pacific is continuing to be more acidic. Um, you know, the Pacific is sort of the end of what we consider this great conveyor belt um, that takes up thousands of years where water is sort of formed in the North Atlantic and in the Southern um, Atlantic Ocean. And then it takes time, it sort of sinks and moves around the world's oceans and the end of that big conveyor belt. And again, it takes, you know, in the order of thousands of years is the North Pacific Ocean. And so um, the water that's there, it's acidic, it's, um, it's you know, got really low oxygen. Um, and eventually, sometimes that water sort of comes towards the surface in places like the Bering Sea. Right, and you're, uh, and this actually leads to my next question because you, you know, we had, um, you know, if, if we look at the way that your studies are performed, you're you're doing research from sensor data, but you're also uh, using bottle data, and I'm assuming, what do you, what do you see in the bottle data? Yeah, so I mean, most of our sensor data now we can look at most of our physical properties using sensors. So again, um, temperature, how salty the water is, what the density of the water is. Um, how much, much oxygen in the water, um, that largely can be done by sensors. But most of the biological variables um, that we study, you need bottle data still um, to look at it. So for, for Hakai, for example, our studies around British Columbia, we, um, we sample through bottles and nets, sort of everything in the lower end of the food chain. So we, we measure viruses, um, we measure bacteria, phytoplankton, which are the single-celled plants in the water, zooplankton, um, which again are those like little kind of bugs or crustaceans often that we see. Um, and so from that, we can sort of determine what's happening um, to the different levels of the food web. We also measure nutrients as well because um, the phytoplankton, um, what grows um, depends on the ratio of different nutrients that we see. Um, and that really is the very base of our food web. Um, so 
the studies are preliminary. We don't have the same time series in the different components of the ecosystem that we do in, say, temperature, oxygen, or salinity. Um, but we can start, you know, patterns are emerging. So one of the ones that I mentioned, again, is sort of the invasion of the southern zooplankton species. Um, another, you know, another big change we're seeing is um, the nutrient ratios, which again are sort of the base of what the phytoplankton, what phytoplankton can grow. Those changed considerably during the marine heat wave in the North Pacific from 2014 to 2016. And so, um, again, we don't always have the data to, of the phytoplankton to see what changed, but we imagine that the different species that we're seeing is going to be quite different. And, and same with viruses and bacteria. Right. Wow, that is interesting. Um, Carson, I wanted to stick with the Arctic for a second. Um, th there are a couple of terms that pop up in the, the new cycle quite a bit. And, you know, one is um, Arctic amplification and the other one is climate pushing. Can you perhaps help us understand a bit um, what's going on there? Um, sure. So some of the... Uh... You know, some of the concerns really are that, you know, in addition to things like the surface uh, ocean circulations uh, pumping a lot more heat into the into the Arctic region, um, the atmosphere itself is trapping a lot more heat uh, than it used to. In fact, a recent uh, NOAA and NASA study that just came out uh, suggests that the Earth's, is, the Earth's atmosphere is trapping about twice as much heat as uh, the models had anticipated um, at this time. So that uh, that does not bode well for future temperature increases, especially in places like the Arctic. Um, but in turn, all of this additional heat is altering patterns of the jet stream, for example, forcing it uh, farther north in the summertime, bringing storms up to those regions that didn't used to get uh, summertime storms and not as far south in the wintertime. Um, so on top of that, uh, Snowpack is uh, is in many places decreasing and is even disappearing in the summertime, um, and that's uh, altering this, uh, this, the feedback with air temperature. Um, generally, you know, more snow equals more reflection, and uh, which equals uh, decreases in air temperature. But with the absence of snow and ice, uh, more solar energy gets absorbed, and that further heats the surface and melts more snow. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, and and the same would be true of the ocean um, as well. Uh, the sea ice would then protect um, the sea temperature exactly. below. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, the sea ice has a very high reflectivity, but the open ocean has a very low reflectivity. It absorbs yeah. a lot of what what it receives. Yeah. And sticking with that, Jennifer, um, I see a lot um, is written about the Laptev Sea and the sea ice um, uh, um, occurrence in in the Laptev Sea and being tracked for a long time. Um, are you seeing similar changes on the, the northwest coast of Canada? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I was on the ship in 2006 and then again in 2007. And 2006, we think of as like the last year when there was multi-year ice in the Canada basin. Um, and by the time we got there in 2007, it was largely gone. And it's really just first year ice that melts every year now uh, in the summertime. So uh, you know, the Arctic or, or the Canada basin of the Arctic Ocean um, is largely ice free now in the summertime, whereas it used to be fully covered with ice. Um, and, and actually, during my PhD, I sort of studied that interaction quite intensively um, because we found that when you have that much sea ice melting, you actually leave this layer of really fresh water at the surface that essentially traps the heat below it. Um, mm -hmm. And so every year you get solar radiation that warms the ocean. And then now it used to just sort of 
released from the ocean in the in the in the autumn as you got mixing from storms and sea ice formation and that sort of thing. Um, but now because there's this layer of sea ice melt that wasn't there before, it actually traps that heat into the ocean. Um, and, and that heat is available to now melt ice during the wintertime, um, which is another new process that we hadn't seen, seen before. Um, and it's possible as well that that sort of, you know, instead of the sudden loss of heat that we used to see, so this gradual loss of heat, that is also what's influencing some of the storm tracks and the changes in the atmospheric circulation that we see as well. Wow. And um, that, you know, the loss of the sea ice in those areas, that's going to have quite a significant effect on particular species that make their life, uh, you know, living on sea ice uh, and below sea ice, um, you know, uh, certain species of um, um, zooplankton, things like that. Um, What can you tell us about, you know, what is happening local to that area? Um, obviously, um, the further north you go, you're looking to, to Arctic species like polar bears. But um, um, what have you seen as part of your studies, not even just in the coastal area, but uh, some of the uh, the areas that the Hakai Institute is following uh, where those changes are occurring? Yeah, I mean, one Arctic example that's really stuck with me um, and probably the most stark of an example that I can think of is um, the northward um, migration of Pacific salmon. And so for a couple of decades now, they've been observing Pacific salmon in the Mackenzie River, um, and they've never seen that before. And, and we don't necessarily know what stocks are there. We don't know if they survive. We just know that there are Pacific salmon in the Mackenzie River now. So I feel like that's quite a stark um, northward migration that we haven't seen before. Um, for the BC coast, one of the largest changes that we've seen is the loss of sea stars, um, which we think is really impacting the marine ecosystem. Uh, we're part of quite a big uh, study right now that's being led by Alyssa Gaiman from UBC, um, and she's been focusing on Pycnopodia, those big sunflower stars, which are mm-hmm. now critically endangered, um, right. and uh, trying to understand you know, why we still, still see pockets of adult populations um, and trying to understand under what conditions they can survive um, and under what conditions they die. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, again, everything is sort of pointing towards temperature, possibly oxygen is another stressor for these species. Um, but they really are an important species for the nearshore environment. Um, even we think could be influencing things like kelp and other types of um, ecosystems that we know and love. And so, yeah. Yeah, that's been one of the major changes. Um, we don't know if it's temperature and, you know, that's still, the jury's out as to whether it's a virus um, or, or it was temperature stress itself. Um, but I think, you know, one thing I like to think about a lot is I know how stressful it is for humans when we're in a marine heat wave situation. Um, and we have a much bigger temperature range that we can live in. I mean, we can we can live in minus 60 to plus 60 degrees if we have to, right? I mean, we have means of adapting to that. Whereas mm-hmm. an animal in an ocean, it might be used to living in about a five degree Celsius temperature range. Um, and if you're at sort of the, the top of that temperature range for long enough, you know, the warmest that you can really tolerate, it's really gonna cause cumulative stress. And so when there's things like viruses or bacteria or other things, um, you know, animals that want to eat you, you're not as fit as you would be otherwise. Um, and, and you know, these are concepts that we're just really starting to think about now as sort of the cumulative stress of, of multiple years of um, 
of you know not ideal conditions. With so many wonderful destinations around the world to choose from, a little help can go a long way. Quest Dark Adventures is your premium adventure travel company, offering a wide and diverse selection of destinations to choose from. With dive adventures from the Pacific to the Caribbean and adventure travel from Costa Rica to Africa, Quest Dive Adventures offers packages including flights and accommodations, activities, transfers, diving and more. Everything to enjoy your perfect vacation. What's your quest? Yeah, yeah, definitely. If we if we look at um, the United Nations um, new Ocean Decade in, in, initiative, um, what priorities can we expect uh, need to be actioned there? Yeah, so I mean, I think again, it's you know reducing unless we reduce our CO two, um, you know, issues in the ocean are just going to continue. You know, the things we're talking about aren't going to go away unless we start really drastically reducing our CO2 output. So that's, you know, in my mind, you know, the number one, you know, achievable goal is that we meet our, our um, 2030 um, commitments, you know, of our emission, our, of our CO2 emissions. I mean, that's absolutely critical. Um, but I think there's another, you know, there's, there's the plastic problem, of course, that's another huge issue that really needs to be dealt with. Um, but I think there's also a lot of societal issues as well. Um, and, you know, personally for me, I feel like uh, equality in ocean science and ocean monitoring, um, not just in ocean science, but equality in the way that we use the ocean is also really important. Um, you know, I can speak to ocean science, you know, I know it the best. Uh, and we still don't necessarily have a gender equality. We don't have... Um, equality from, you know, different countries, we're still largely, um, you know, the wealthy nations have large ocean science programs, because ocean mm -hmm. science is really expensive. Yeah. Um, but that doesn't mean that, you know, the hundreds of other nations um, that have coastlines um, aren't concerned and, and uh, you know, don't have necessarily a right to know what's happening in their waters as well. And so I really do think that this, um, inequity needs to be addressed. And I also think that, um, you know, again, I work closely with um, some really wonderful um, colleagues uh, who are Indigenous, and I learned so much from their points of view. Um, and it's been such a reminder for me to learn, to know we've got our Western science, but we have this parallel Indigenous science. Um, mm -hmm. And there is so much knowledge in there. Um, and, you know, we've often thought that we should incorporate indigenous science into Western science, but I really don't think that that's necessarily the way forward. I think we can use them in parallel and understand that they're equally important. Um, and that, you know, maybe we need to break down some of these barriers um, of what an ocean scientist is in order to right. incorporate that knowledge into our world. And it, that actually brings me to my next point, because, you know, as you said, um, you know, climate change does certainly affect um, indigenous people um, in different ways to to people who live in, in urban environments. Um, but you know, this also means that they're on the forefront of the receiving end of the changes that are occurring. Um, are there opportunities the, in your local area or with the Hakai Institute where where citizens um, can participate in citizen science efforts? 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's a few big uh, citizen scientist programs, one's through the Pacific Salmon Foundation. They have um, essentially lent CTDs to different people to um, go out and collect the data, um, people that own boats. So that's been really wonderful. But again, CTDs are really expensive. I mean, they're like $30,000 or so. Um, and, you know, for some of the indigenous communities, that's just an insurmountable cost. Um, and we're often asked of ways that we can, you know, that they, they can collect their own data um, in a way that is feasible for them. So, yes, I think any sort of, you know, and, and a lot of indigenous communities are out on the water and they know the water way better <laughs> than I do. Um, and so finding ways to equip them with instruments, I think, would be really helpful for all. Yeah, and Carson, I know you and I are smiling because we've been working on on this exact point for five years now. So <laughs> exactly, we, we will hopefully have a, an answer and and um, you know to to, to the, the CTD cost. But um, I wanted to also ask you, just staying with that the the, the um, uh, United Nations Ocean Deck Initiative, um, how can we build? You know, uh, let's preface this. You, you previously mentioned that you know we're this is all one interconnected ocean. It doesn't matter where you live in the world. Um, at some point in the the spectrum of time, molecules of water will travel uh, through the ocean conveyor belt and go everywhere around the world. So how can we build um, a better communication structure with regard to the ocean's role in um, in climate change? I think we need to engage as many people as possible, and we need to make most of the knowledge that um, that scientists have and that other people have as well. You know, we need to have as many voices in the conversation as we possibly can. Um, you know, people that, uh, you know, anyone that's influenced by the ocean should be part of the conversation, in my opinion. Um, and so whether that's through media, whether that's through, um, you know, you know, ha engaging specifically within different communities, I'm not sure necessarily what, how to go about doing it, but I really think this is an opportunity for everyone to be part of the conversation. As I mentioned, we need as many brains as possible to sort of think our way out of this. Right, right. And I want to circle back to something else that uh, pivoted, or pivot off something else you said before. Um, you have a certain um, interest right now in microclimates. Maybe you can explain that a little bit because microclimates do actually affect um, everyone at their local scale. And that's something that Carson and I are certainly interested in understanding. Yeah, I mean, this is a brand new area in ocean science, I think. And it's, you know, as our instruments have gotten better and, and we've been able to really um, look at this range of variability in different places and locations, it's it's shocking how much variability there are in time space scales. And again, if we really want to think about what's going to influence that individual sea star or your individual salmon stock, we really need to understand um, the conditions that they're impacted by. And in the past, you know, we've collected data that, you know, once a year that was 100 kilometers apart, for example. Um, and that tells us something about, you know, interannual and interdecadal changes, um, but it doesn't actually tell us um, what influences different animals at the scales that they care about. And so moving into microclimate research, I think is really important. And thinking about the ocean as a microclimate um, and, you know, people that are divers or that are surfers or that spend a lot of time in the water, they know this. They know that, you know, on this side of that 
of that um, headland, it's going to be warmer than on that side mm-hmm. of the headland. Um, but ocean science hasn't quite caught up with that yet. Um, and so, for example, like at, at Hakai, we've got a fleet of the tidbit um, temperature sensors. Um, so we can start really looking at these spatial scales. Um, but those are often only at one depth. And, and the vertical um, scales are also really profound. Like we have one thermistor string um, that's about seven in water that's 70 meters deep. And we've got about 15 different sensors on there. Um, wow. And we've learned that, you know, the it's bottom. Expensive sort of, string. It's not too bad. <laughs> that's, yeah. that's the work that got us involved in this, uh, in this whole, uh, this whole process of citizen science was yeah. putting uh, hobo temperature loggers and light loggers on a, on a buoy string uh, down in Little Cayman and seeing that there was a lot of difference in, from one layer to the next. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's so interesting. I mean, you can see where the tide influences the water. You can see where the sun influences the water, and that these there are these really profound layers that are influenced by those different processes. And you can start thinking like, I don't know, a fish at that point. Like, if I need to stay in water that's colder than eight degrees, like the ulicon, which is another really important north coast species or northwest coast species then I need to stay in waters that's this deep, you know, but if there's not enough oxygen, then I'm kind of screwed. (laughs) So you can really start thinking about, again, those multiple stressors. Yeah, really, really interesting. I, um, I want to go also go back to something about, you know, connecting people. Um, I know that you're involved with a film festival. Maybe you can tell us about that, because that is a good way to connect people. Yeah, I mean, it's this is a brand new initiative, and it's been really exciting. Um, yeah, I have a, a friend who is a filmmaker, and we've talked at length about how frustrated I am that you, know, you do all this work, and you know, maybe ten people will read your paper or something along those lines, um, and how just how much really interesting information there is in the scientific realm um, that really never makes it into the public knowledge, you know maybe at best, you know, 0.1% of all of the scientific work that's done currently makes it into our public knowledge realm. And as we know, instead, there's all this other kind of fake news that's out there. Um, And so, you know, we've been brainstorming ways about how we can just try and um, bring scientists and filmmakers together so that if they work more collaboratively, then they can, um, that knowledge exchange will come naturally. And so we've created the British Columbia Environmental Film Festival. Um, and yeah, essentially the concept is that scientists and filmmakers are, are on equal footing here. And so, um, you know, those collaborations and those discussions are going to happen. Um, you know, some of the highlights that we plan to have is um, almost like a, um, you know, a discussion about the film's um, scientific credibility in a sense, you know, we can, you know, we're not going to necessarily start making films right now with filmmakers, but the films that we're going to screen, we're going to give some scientific feedback to the filmmakers so that they, um, you know, that they, again, are part of that discussion as well. Um, And yeah, we're hoping, you know, down the line, it will lead to a more active um, sort of, you know, working involvement between scientists and filmmakers. 
I think that's just fantastic and a great place to end today. Um, I want to thank you both, uh, Dr. Koshchan again for joining us, but Dr. Jennifer Jackson from the Hakai Institute, thank you for your time today. And if, uh, if anyone wants to know more about uh, the Hakai Institute, it's uh, uh, www.hakai.org, I believe, and the film festival. Can they look that up somewhere? Sure, yeah, it's www.bceff.org. Perfect. Thank you, guys. It's been great today. Hopefully we'll have you back again in the future and you can tell us something new. Thank you. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Okay, Carson, let's uh, switch gears to the news. And for those of you that are joining us for the first time, uh, we do have a newsletter that goes out once a week. And therein we like to um, add two or three interesting articles that we've found from the news cycle uh, that are climate related and add into that an interesting scientific report um, and any other relevant information that we'd like to share for that week. And we send that out to you once a week, just the facts. And um, so please go ahead to 2wc.org and sign up for the newsletter. Um, Carson, in the news cycle this week, um, I've noticed that there was an article that was quite interesting and has the headline, to understand how warming is driving harmful algal blooms, look to regional patterns, not global trends. What's going on there? That's a really interesting article that uh, that's popped up and it really highlights that even though there's a strong global uh, climate change signal in seeing increasing algal blooms uh, throughout the world. It's really in just certain places. Other places are seeing actually a decrease in, in harmful algal blooms um, or just algal blooms in general. Some are not so harmful, but uh, you know, worldwide there are places where they're just not as prevalent as before. And it really highlights the fact that there are localized effects uh, that are exacerbating these uh, these blooms, uh, such as nutrient runoffs um, and hypoxic zones, and um, you know water circulation in the near shore, that are very very much localized. And to understand these, we really need to see a lot more monitoring taking place. And a lot of this monitoring is coming from citizen scientists out there who care about water quality and such. They're taking samples for science. Um, and so we, we definitely need more of that going on at regional and local scales, uh, especially in areas where these blooms are becoming more prevalent. Um, but as well as places where they're not. I mean, we're, we're looking at places uh, right now, uh, like the coast of Florida, um, the, uh, the red uh, sargassum in the, in the Caribbean, the, the Turkish sea snot uh, that's, mm -hmm. that's taking place right now around the coast of Turkey. And uh, these are all places where we need far more monitoring going on. And that's something that is underscored in the article. Yeah, I have seen in the Caribbean, especially the uh, the beaches um, uh, that are on the, the uh, windward side of the islands uh, do take on a tremendous amount of uh, sargasm that's washing up on the beaches that needs to be cleaned. And uh, Florida, obviously, with the red tide uh, affecting uh, local species uh, quite greatly, uh, being that that particular one is toxic. Um, great. We'll watch that one. Um, switching gears again, let's look at uh, the next one I wanted to talk about. This one is interesting. Uh, it says, uh, Earth is trapping unprecedented amount of heat coming from NASA. What's going on there? 
uh, yeah, as we touched on earlier in the in the podcast, this is a, a recent study that's come out of NASA with uh, with uh, co-authorship with NOAA, where they they took a look at uh, at the amount of heat that's being trapped in the atmosphere relative to what was projected uh, by a lot of the uh, the global climate change models uh, back in uh, around 2013 or so, and they're finding that in many cases the amount of heat being trapped in the atmosphere is uh, is almost double what uh, that what had been anticipated or expected by this time in uh, in 2021 and such so um, that really is uh, very significant in terms of raising alarm bells that the models uh, that had been used in the last uh, ipcc assessment report may actually be underestimating uh, the uh, magnitude of climate change and global warming across the planet and uh, the new generation of models that are that are being prepared right now uh, hopefully they will be accounting for those and uh, give us a much more reliable um, and accurate estimation now you're referring to the models you're referring to the the, the rcp values is that correct that's correct the the, uh, the couple climate models the global climate models that are being used by the ipcc in their assessment reports to look at how climate is changing and uh, has changed in the past and is changing in the, in the future. And uh, there are approximately 40 of those models out there that they, that they combine to get an estimate at different uh, amounts of concentration of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere, uh, which determine how much uh, solar radiation is being trapped. And so you're saying that this report is saying that we're in some instances exceeding the highest value models that they had. That's correct. Yes, they're uh, they're being uh, they're even the highest uh, emission scenarios are are underestimating the amount of heat that's been that's being trapped in the atmosphere. Yeah, definitely cause for concern. Well, thank you, Carson. Thanks for today. Um, and to those listening, we will see you again for another episode of the Two Degrees C Climate Chat. Thanks, guys. Thanks a lot. Thanks for listening to today's episode of the Two Degrees C Climate Chat. If you have a question you would like answered, a topic for discussion, or would like to be a guest on the show, please leave a comment below. We'd love to hear your stories and climate journeys. And if you like what you've heard today, please like, subscribe, and comment wherever you hear your podcasts. Next week, we'll be joined by Jason Boyer, Chief Meteorologist for ABC News 13 to discuss his role in the climate conversation and that of those in broadcast media. So be sure to check back in then or find out more about the stories you just heard by visiting our blog at 2degreesc.org and connect to others like you via our social media. Thank you to our sponsors and partners without which this podcast is not possible with special thanks to Seren Media for producing today's episode. To find out more about our partners, please visit our website. And if you'd like to become a sponsor or partner, please email us at podcast at 2degreesc.org.